I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. We're going to be looking today at chapter 16 in the last book. Revelation chapter 16. It's actually been a few weeks since we were in Revelation, so let me give you just a very quick recap. Chapter 15 is actually part of what's happening in chapter 16, and so it's important to get a reminder of kind of what's happening. Back in chapter 15, John saw a sign from heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues. And then he had a little bit of a of a pause in verses 2 through 4 where he saw God's people together in heaven safe and secure because of Jesus Christ singing what is called the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. And then we looked at verses 5 through 8 where he sees the sanctuary of heaven, kind of the picture of an Old Testament temple, but it's the temple of heaven where God is dwelling with his people and from the sanctuary... Out come these angels with these plagues, and they are given bowls as a means by which they are to pour out the judgment of God on the world. And then we pick up in verse six, chapter 16, verse 1. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one. Who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat. And they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God, the almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, it is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup 
of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, there are some heavy and serious things that we hear in this, your word. I pray that you would help us to take those things in, to understand them. But I also pray, Father, that your spirit would be at work. That your spirit would be at work in such a way that all of your people, as we read these words, would be so filled with encouragement and hope and peace and joy. As we remember your great grace. How Jesus himself has taken the cup of your wrath and drank it down fully for us. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I heard a story this past week and it was one of those stories that when you hear it, you, you can't really believe that it's true. In fact, when I, when I heard it, I was expecting down at the bottom of the story that it said it came from the Babylon Bee or from the Onion or one of those sources. But I actually looked it up and it's a true story. It's a story that came out about uh, 2015 about a lady named Catherine Rollins. Catherine Rollins lives in London. And back in 2015, she had recently found out that her favorite flower vase that had been sitting on her coffee table for close to 30 years was in fact an unexploded bomb from World War I. One of those bombs that was dropped out of the Zeppelins from the German army onto the city of London in World War I. And when Catherine was 15, she and a couple of her friends were walking home from school one day and they saw this thing sticking out of the ground. And so they got some rocks in their hands and they dug it out. And they looked at it and sure enough, it was a bomb. It looked like a bomb. It was about this tall. It had a flat bottom, a, a cylinder, and then a cap, a pointed cap on the top. And they recognized it as a bomb. But the girlfriends of, this, of Catherine convinced her that it's so old, certainly it can't be harmful. Well, Catherine believed them and so she took it home. And she turned it into a flower vase. She unscrewed the top of the bomb and would put flowers and water right into the cylinder, all right on top of the explosive. One day she was watching a documentary on television. It was a, a TV documentary that was talking about all of the unexploded bombs and ordinances all throughout Europe from the various world wars. And she remembered her vase. She called a non-emergency police hotline and they immediately got her in touch with the English Ministry of Defense who rushed to her house within the hour, took the shell back to a military base and disarmed it and then brought it back to her. They told her that for the past 30 years, she had been sitting next to a bomb that was fully capable of killing anyone within a 65-foot radius and completely leveling her house. Now, here's the moral of the story. You can be incredibly close to incredible danger and not even know it.
It wasn't until Catherine saw that documentary on the television that her eyes were opened and she understood the danger that she was potentially in. The book of Revelation is written to open our eyes. It's written that we would see what is true, what is what is reality, that we would see things from God's perspective, that we would see the spiritual reality that is going on all around us all the time, that we would have our eyes opened to see the very real danger for all of those who are not in a relationship with the almighty God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would see, for those who are not believers in Christ, how very close and how very near disaster is, judgment is. And also for those who are Christians, for those who are in Christ, that we would be filled with an incredible hope and an incredible peace as we understand that there is no longer any condemnation, no longer any judgment that we face because of what Jesus has done for us. Revelation 16 brings these things into focus for us. I want us to see three things from the passage today. First, I want us to see what John sees about the character of God that necessitates and controls judgment. Secondly, I want us to see something about what it says about the recipients of the world that require judgment. And then lastly... The reason why God's people should find hope in judgment. Now, before we jump into those three things, it's been a few weeks since we've been in Revelation. So let's just remind ourselves a few things about the context of this book. It's a letter that was written to John, uh, excuse me, written from John to a number of churches in the area called Asia Minor in the first century. And it records a number of visions that John receives from Jesus himself through an angel. This book is not meant to be confusing. It is not meant to be hard to understand. It's meant to be read and understood, and it's meant to be a source of hope and comfort and peace for God's people. It's not written in one long linear chronology of the events that it records, but what it is is a number of cycles or snapshots of the same period of time from different points of view or perspectives. It's telling us what it's like to live between the advents, between when Jesus came the first time and when he will come again. And it tells us what to expect as it gets closer and closer to his second advent. It's a book that is full of symbolism, full of pictures. It's almost like a child's storybook. And here's the main point. God is in control of history and Jesus wins. We've talked about how these series of cycles in the book of Revelation come to us over and over again. And they often are centered around the number seven. So we've seen seven letters that were written to seven churches. And they've told us about the seven seals and the seven trumpets. In chapters 12 through 14, we looked at the seven pictures of what's happening behind the spiritual curtain on the cosmic battlefield. And here in chapters 15 and chapter 16, we read about these seven bowls that are full of the wrath and judgment of God that are poured out on the earth by seven angels. I'm not going to take the time to drill down into all of the specific details of each and every bowl today. 
Suffice it to say, they mirror what we read about with the trumpets, the seven trumpets earlier in Revelation. And they also mirror the plagues that Moses were given to give to Pharaoh and the Egyptians in Exodus. Instead, what I want us to look at today is the big picture. The judgment that is described here in these verses by all of these bowls and what they mean for us today. So first of all, what I want us to see is that the character of God necessitates and controls judgment. Did you notice how much we're told about the character of God here in these verses? We read in verse 4 in following that the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and the springs of water. That's in verse 4. And then after that, there's a declaration that is made in verses 5, 6, and 7. And that declaration that is made is essentially a description of the character of God. Look at how he's described. He's described as just. He's described as holy. He is described as eternal. He is the one who is and who was. Down in verse 7, we read that he is the Lord God, the Almighty. And we've talked about in the past that that's a name that is given to God to talk about his sovereignty, his being all powerful, the all powerful sovereign king of the universe. He's again described as being just and he's also described as being true at the end of verse 7. This this is a description of the character of God. It is the character of God that necessitates the judgment that is coming on the world. God is perfectly holy. He is perfectly righteous and just and true and sovereign and eternal. And his very character means that he cannot entertain and sustain evil and sin in this world. He must deal with it. He must bring it to an end because of his very character, his very nature. As we're going to see in a minute, the judgment of God is poured out on all those who would oppose God, on the unrighteous and unholy and sinfulness of the world. God's character, God's very essence, makes it impossible for him not to deal with the unrighteousness and sin and evil that's in this world. But it's his character that not only necessitates judgment, it's also what controls the judgment. Again, remind yourself of the big picture that we're reading about in chapters 15 and 16. This, the scene where all of this bold judgment is coming from. It's the sanctuary in heaven. It's the temple of heaven itself. It's the place of God's presence and God's glory. It is from the sanctuary of God. It's from where God is dwelling that these angels are sent out with the plagues and the bowls. They are sent out by God himself to carry out his plan. We see that again in verses 5 and 7 of chapter 16. It is God, we read in verse 5, that brought these judgments. And in verse 7, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. It is God who sends forth these judgments that we are reading about. He is the one that is in control of them. It is true that God is a God of love and God is a God of grace, but he is also a God that is completely and perfectly holy and righteous. And his holiness and his righteousness cannot sustain, cannot entertain evil and sin forever. New Testament scholar Leon Morris talks about the fact that it's impossible for us as human beings to understand how these two things come together. Someone who is perfectly loving and gracious and someone who is filled with wrath. 
We can feel that, right? It's hard. It's hard for us to see how that would fit together because we think of it in human terms. And we know that we could never do those things perfectly. We're always erring on one side or the other. But this is God. This is the almighty creator of the universe. And He is perfectly loving. He is perfectly gracious. And He also brings judgment on evil. He pours out His wrath and His judgment against sin and righteousness. And even as He does that, He is perfectly loving. So what we see here is a sovereign creator king, the Lord God Almighty Himself, holy and righteous and just and loving. And He is sovereignly administrating and controlling these judgments that are necessitated by His very character. And notice as well that as these judgments are poured out, they take place with precise purpose. That's how we see, that's what we see with the recipients of the world that require God's judgment. It's in verses 2 through 16. Who is it that these bowls of judgment are poured onto? We see in verse 2 that it's poured out specifically on the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. We talked about this idea of the mark of the beast uh, a few chapters ago in Revelation. And we talked about the fact that it's not speaking about a, a literal mark that somebody had on their hand or their forehead. But it was, it was representative of being owned by something. And so when someone has the mark of the beast on them, they are owned by the beast. They are in service to the beast. They are a worshiper of the beast. These are the ones who worship something other than the one true God. This is the very definition of idolatry. Worshiping a false God. And in this case, it's the ultimate false God. They are worshiping Satan himself. And so the judgment of God comes upon them. It's not just the idolaters. It's also those who are immoral that God's judgment come upon. If you look in verses 17 through 21, you'll see that there is a reference to Babylon the Great. We've talked about that phrase before back in chapter 14, verse 8. We read about Babylon the Great in verse 8 of 14. Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the Great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And then next week in chapter 17, we're going to read about her again in chapter 17, verses 4 and 5. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written the name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. We'll see, see Babylon mentioned again in chapter 18, verses 2 and 3. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. When the readers in the first century were reading Revelation for the first time, they would have understood the name Babylon to be a code word for the Roman Empire. But Babylon is used throughout the scriptures to speak about the country of Babylon. But also it's used throughout the scriptures as, as a way of pointing to anyone who opposes God 
And it's almost always associated with sexual immorality, even as these passages that I just read show us. That's who God's judgment is poured out against, the immoral. Now, these are not just people who wrestle against their immorality, for that's all of us, right? These are people who are being described as being having given over to their immorality. They're not wrestling with it. They are openly pursuing it. It's not just the idolaters and the immoral that God's judgment is poured out on. We also see in verses 10 through 16, it's poured out on the dragon and the two beasts. We've referred to them as the evil trinity, as we've seen them in the previous chapters. The dragon representing Satan and two of his minions, two of his followers, the beast one and then the beast two that here is referred to as the false prophet. And we're told that God's judgment is also poured out on Satan and his demons and his kingdom of evil and darkness. So what we see with these bold judgments are the final and complete judgment of God's wrath that are poured out on all of those who are owned by Satan, who worship him, who serve the evil one rather than the one true God, who live lives characterized by immorality, and they're poured out on Satan himself and his evil kingdom and darkness. And what I want you to notice is at the end of verse 6, it's what they deserve. That's what it says. In verse chapter 16, verse 6, it is what they deserve at the end of the verse. Verse 9 helps us to understand that as well as they tells us that the people that God's judgment are poured out on don't repent and turn to God. They curse the name of God. They curse his essence. They curse his character and they do not repent and give glory to God. And again, in verse 11, they curse the God of heaven and they don't repent even when they're warned and given many opportunities to repent, they don't. It's a reminder that God is looking for true and genuine repentance. Not the kind of repentance of Pharaoh. I'll let the Israelites go. Oh, no, I won't. I'll let them go. Oh, no, I won't. God would bring plagues and he would feel discomfort and so he would repent and turn away from his unrighteousness. And as soon as the discomfort was lifted again, he would pursue unrighteousness. Now what God is looking for is true repentance. A repentance that is based on genuine sorrow for sin. Sin against the holiness and the righteousness of the Lord God Almighty. Charles Spurgeon in one of his sermons talked about what true repentance looks like. He says some shake because of their sins, but are not shaken out of their sins. Mariners far out at sea when their laboring ship threatens to go down to the bottom will repent. But such repentance is only a few qualms of conscience because they are in the dread of death and judgment and hell. So that men who lie on a bed in sickness when their bones ache and their hearts melt and their, the grave yawns beneath the couch, will often repent. And yet, if they could be raised up again, they would return to their sins as a dog returns to its vomit. Those on whom God's judgment is poured out curse God. They curse His character. And even though they're given many opportunities to turn from their unrighteousness and turn to the one true God, there is no true sorrow. There is no repentance. There is no turning from their sin. I want you to hear clearly this morning. God is gracious and patient. 
God gives plenty of opportunity for all to hear the truth, to turn from evil and their wrongdoing and to repent. God is a God that is long suffering. He could have brought an end to everything when Adam and Eve sinned or any point from then on. But God is slow to anger. He is slow to bring judgment. He is long-suffering. He is abundant in patient mercy. And He gives plenty of opportunities to repent and to turn to Him. But hear what Revelation 16 is telling us clearly. God's patience with sin and evil will not last forever. It will come to an end. There is a time coming when the warnings will be over. And His final judgment will begin. It's an important warning this morning for all who might be here who are not in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You probably didn't come to church planning on hearing something so serious and heavy. But I would say to you this morning that if you're here and you're not a Christian, there is nothing in the world that is more important for you to hear than this call from the God Himself for you to repent and to turn to Him. Let today be the day of salvation. Let today be the day that you come into the family of God and you understand God as your heavenly father because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one last thing that I want us to see from this passage, and that is for all of those who are God's people, that we would actually find hope in judgment. All of this talk about judgment is actually supposed to bring an incredible amount of hope and peace for God's people. Now, how is that possible? Three ways that I think we can see from this passage. The first is this. Did you notice in verse 19, that little phrase there about the cup of the wine of the fury of God's wrath? We actually saw it back in chapter 14 as well in verse 10, where there it was described as the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. It's this vivid picture that we get throughout Scripture of God's wrath being poured into a cup that then is poured out on God's people. And it's meant to grab your imaginations. It's as if we think of a cup and God's wrath being poured into that cup and then God taking the cup and pouring out his wrath on the unrighteousness and sin of this world. It's a vivid picture. It's a picture that is meant to capture our imaginations. And Jesus spoke of that cup as well when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Just before he was to go to the cross, he went to the garden and he prayed to his father and he said, Father, could this cup pass from me? Could the cup of the judgment of God not have to be poured out on me? But then he said, not my will. But your will be done. And we know what the Bible says about God's will. That indeed, God's will was for the cup of God's judgment to be poured out on Jesus. On the cross, Jesus took the cup that had the, the wrath and the fury and the judgment of God. And he drank it down completely. He did it fully. He did it completely. And did you notice that that's actually what we see in verse 17, that when this seventh and final bowl of judgment is poured out, there is a declaration that comes from the throne from God himself in verse 17. He says with the final judgment being poured out, it is done. That could also be translated, 
It is finished. And that is not the first time that we have heard God say those words. Because on the cross, as Jesus took the cup of the judgment of God and He drank it down completely, God's judgment poured out on Christ. Jesus said, it is finished. It is complete. It is over. God's judgment has been totally poured out on Jesus on the cross and He has paid for it all and it is finished and completed. And if you're in Christ this morning, then what that means for you is that you will never, you will never face the judgment of God. You will never be given the, the cup of the judgment of God and have to drink it down yourself because it's already been taken by Jesus on your behalf. And so instead, in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, Paul takes that image of the cup and he turns it and he says, if you're in Christ, no longer do you have a cup of judgment that is waiting for you to drink it down because that was poured out on Christ. Instead, you are given a cup of blessing. You are given a cup that Jesus says at the Lord's Supper is filled with His blood, the blood of the covenant that is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you. That should be a source of incredible hope and peace for us because no longer do we need to wonder. No longer do we need to worry if God could actually forgive me of my sins. Even my besetting sins. Because on the cross, Jesus took the judgment of God in total upon Himself. We also don't have to wonder if the trials and the tribulations and the challenges that we experience in this world are God's judgment against us as God's people. That's the second thing that I want you to be encouraged by if you're one of uh, God's people this morning. You can know that the trials and the tribulations in this life are not God's judgment upon you. Jesus has taken all of God's judgment and He drank it down Himself completely and fully and finally. There is no sin for you to be punished and judged for anymore. Past, present, or future. But that doesn't mean that we don't experience God's discipline from time to time. There is a difference between discipline and judgment. One comes from a holy judge the judge of the universe, in response to sin and unrighteousness and results in eternal damnation. And the other comes from a loving Father in heaven. And it's meant to correct us and to steer us in the right direction and to bring us into ever-increasing fellowship with Himself. Isn't that what we read about in Hebrews chapter 12? We read in Hebrews 12, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons or sons and daughters? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. 
Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God disciplines those he loves. If he doesn't discipline us, we would be illegitimate children and not true sons and daughters. Yes, the discipline of the Lord may seem painful, it may be hard, it may be difficult, it is not pleasant in the moment, but later it brings righteousness and peace and hope. So when you're facing trials and tribulations in this life as a Christian, know that it is not God's judgment on you because that has been poured out on Jesus in full and completely and finally. But know that God does bring trials and tribulations into our lives as His children, as His beloved children, to pull us away from things that we chase in this life that are not good for us, that will harm us. God relentlessly pursues us. He is jealous for us as His people, and He won't allow us to pursue things that are harmful to us forever. And when we look at it that way, it changes our mindset and we don't see God as a tyrant who is out to get us, but a loving and caring and gracious and patient Father in heaven that is working all things for our good. Gives us strength and hope and peace. One last thing that is meant to fill us as God's people with a sense of hope. And that is the the real picture that we get here from Revelation 16, that there is an end coming. To evil and to the effects of the fall. If you look back in the text in verse 14, you'll see the sixth and the seventh bowls being described. And in verse 14, we read about this battle on the great day of God the Almighty. It's speaking about the final, ultimate battle that will take place between good and evil, between God and all those who would oppose Him. And we read in verse 16 that at some point these great armies that will battle against each other will gather at a place in Hebrew that is called Armageddon. Now that's a pretty common word, even in the culture. Think about how often we hear about Armageddon. There are movies named by it. People use it in everyday speech. But do you know that this is the only place in the entire Bible where the word Armageddon shows up? And there's lots of talk about what it means. It actually, in Hebrew, is two words. Har, which means mount or mountain. And Megiddo, which is a geographical location just north of Jerusalem. And there's been all kinds of crazy speculation about what this is describing. About uh, Russia and the United States gathering just north of Jerusalem and having this great battle that would turn into the final battle. Uh, some kind of uh, other armies that are gathering in that specific place. But as we've seen throughout Revelation, there's so much that's symbolic. And I think that's what's happening here with this word as well. Not that there won't be a true cosmic battle that will take place and that is taking place and that will take place in the future. But the word Armageddon and the pointing to this final battle is simply pointing to the fact that there is a final ultimate battle that will take place. So here's the point. Evil, unrighteousness, 
injustice, sin, and death are all going to come to an end. And God's righteousness and justice and holiness and goodness and grace and love are going to reign supreme forever. And as we meditate on that, as God's people, it is meant to be a source of incredible hope and peace. No matter the trials and tribulations that we go through in this world, no matter the experiences that we may have had in the past, no matter what we're having to deal with now or in the future, no matter the consequences that we are dealing with because of things that have happened in the past, no matter the pain that we endure now, no matter the struggles that we fight, all of it is going to come to an end because God is at work. He is bringing judgment on evil and on all those who oppose him. And if you are a Christian this morning, because you are in Christ, he has taken the cup of his wrath for you and given you instead a cup of blessing and grace. And so we wait. We wait as those who are full of hope and confidence because we know that there's an end coming. And verse 15 finally tells us how we're supposed to wait. Stay awake. Keep your garments on. Don't go about naked and be seen exposed. And what it's meaning is not that you can never be naked. But what it's talking about is always being ready. Always being prepared. Always being thoughtful and proactive. Stay awake. Be prepared. Be ready. Don't give up. Don't give in. Be filled with the hope and the peace and the strength of the Lord and be vigilant and proactive in growing in your knowledge and your love for this Lord God Almighty and for your neighbors. Serve the Lord God Almighty in His church and kingdom. Glorify and enjoy Him this week. Stay awake. Be ready. Be prepared. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that both the seriousness of the warning for those who are not in a relationship for you with you and the incredible hope and strength that is meant for those who are your people, both of those that would ring loudly in our ears today from Revelation 16. I pray that you would draw us to yourself and as you do, that you would feed us and nourish us spiritually with your word and with the Lord's Supper. As we, come, as we come to that table now, fill us, Father, once again with the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew records for us that as Jesus and the disciples were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take and eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Every single time we come to the Lord's Supper and we partake in the Lord's Supper, we are getting a picture of Jesus taking the cup of the wrath of God and drinking it down. And instead giving us a cup of blessing. A cup of covenant love. A cup of His grace and mercy. Jesus said this cup, the cup that we get, is a cup that is meant to encourage us and fill us with the truth of God's Word. But it's only for those who would come as believers. Who would come as 
a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you're here this morning and you are a believer in Christ, you are in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, you're a disciple of Jesus, you've publicly professed your faith in Christ at Trinity or another church that believes that God's word is true and that the gospel is by grace alone in Christ alone, then as the elements are coming around, eat and drink and once again be pointed to the gospel story of grace and mercy. And also know that as we come in faith, even a weak faith, the Holy Spirit's at work, taking what we're doing and strengthening us, feeding us, nourishing us spiritually so that as we go out this week, we would be people full of hope and peace and love and a desire and ability to serve our great God. So let's pause for a moment and thank Him for giving us this table.